What do resilient, sustainable, and high-performing supply chains have in common? They are all powered by GEP software. Built on GEP Quantum, the AI-powered, low-code software platform for procurement, supply chain, and sustainability, GEP software helps market-leading companies worldwide achieve breakthrough performance and results. GEP, helping the world's best companies do better. Visit GEP.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In London, I'm Jason Palmer. And in New York, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Bill Gates has been very busy trying to solve some of the world's big problems. But the effort that's spoken least about is the one that might improve the most lives. Our science editor sits down with him to talk about a hoped-for agricultural revolution. And there are few British institutions revered so much at home and abroad as the BBC. But it also comes in for a regular kicking. As the Beeb turns 100, we ask about the social and cultural changes that will challenge it in its next century. But first... On the battlefield, Ukraine has Russia on the back foot. Kiev's forces have advanced through occupied lands, triggering the retreat of Kremlin officials from Kherson. But facing trouble on the ground, the Kremlin has switched its focus, and Russian missiles and Iranian-made drones have rained down on Ukrainian infrastructure. Як результат такого російського терору, сотні тисяч об'єктів зруйновано. Порт President Volodymyr Zelensky says hundreds of thousands of buildings have been destroyed, including hospitals, schools, and power stations, all to make it harder for Ukrainians to endure the cold months ahead. And Russia's efforts appear to be reaping destructive rewards. Ukrainian reports suggest that more than a million households have been left without electricity. As winter approaches, they're struggling to keep the lights on. The Russian strategy is to try to take down Ukraine's power grid by first chopping it up into pieces. So they have been using missiles to target electrical substations, which bind different pieces of the Ukrainian power grid together. Matt Steinglass is our Europe correspondent. And if they can manage to cut that system into pieces, it means they can't move power around between different regions of the country to try to balance the load. And that raises the risk of blackouts. And if things get really serious, you could have very large-scale grid failures in different places around the country. How effective has this Russian bombing campaign been so far? In contrast to Russia's invasion, their effort to destroy Ukraine's electrical grid seems to be quite effective and well-planned. They've hit some substations with as many as 10 missiles. Besides the substations, they're targeting the power plants themselves, which have also been hit repeatedly with cruise missiles and drones. Last week, while I was traveling in the city of Dnipro in central Ukraine, a power plant there was hit by cruise missiles. 
And I spoke to a couple of teenage boys who were walking a dog across the street from the plant. They said they had heard multiple explosions, although one of them had slept through them. And I asked them whether it was scary. They said that they had gotten used to that sort of thing which shows you how often the Russians are hitting this area with missiles. As of last week, uh, Ukrainergo, the national grid company, said that at least 30% of the country's electric infrastructure had been damaged. And what sort of impact is that having on the country? Well, there are rolling blackouts going on in Ukrainian cities, but the real danger is of an unplanned, large-scale shutdown because the Russians hit the system really hard. If that happened then there could be real damage to Ukrainian infrastructure and to industry. I traveled to a steel plant run by ArcelorMittal Ukraine in the city of Krivirih, which is in central Ukraine. We have a bad reaction to peaks and to sudden changes of the situation. When I was at the plant, I met the CEO of ArcelorMittal Ukraine, Mauro Longobardo, and he said that if the power were cut abruptly, the blast furnace could be wrecked. So I'll give you an example. Last week, the electric power station has been you know, attacked and we forecasted some uh, disruption of the uh, electricity supply. We were in very big trouble. because uh, Elsewhere, in cities like Kiev, water and sewage systems might shut down. If the temperature were below zero, water would start to freeze, the pipes would freeze and crack, and the damage could be really long-term. What can Ukraine do to stop these attacks? The most obvious thing that Ukraine needs to stop the attacks is better air defenses to shoot down missiles. It's already received a new air defense system from Germany called IRIS-T. It's actually the first example of that anti-missile and anti-air system. Germany itself doesn't have any of them yet. There is another system that Norway is supplying called NASAMS, but Russia has a lot of cheap Iranian drones called Shaheds. They're hard to detect by radar. When they swarm targets, it's hard to shoot all of them down. The Ukrainians say they're shooting down more than 50%, but that clearly isn't enough. These drones are slow. They have a small warhead, about 50 kilograms. But if that hits an electrical substation, it's plenty big enough to do a lot of damage. It makes a kind of a funny buzzing noise. So the Ukrainians have started calling them mopeds or farters. So given that Ukraine isn't able to stop all these missiles getting through, what are they doing to keep the lights on? For one thing, they've got 70 repair teams who are working nonstop around the country to try to make repairs. They're imposing these rolling blackouts, and the aim there is just to make sure that the demand doesn't exceed the supply of electricity that's available, which would cause an unexpected blackout. They can get the Europeans to supply more power through the connections that have been established since March between European systems and the Ukrainian grid. They are replacing destroyed equipment wherever they can. But one of the issues is that much of the Ukrainian grid still runs on old Soviet-era technology, and the voltage systems in Soviet electrical grids are different from the voltages that are used in Western Europe. So that means that it's harder for them to find uh, extra transformers, especially. In some cases, it's difficult to find circuit breakers that will work in the Ukrainian system. And they are asking, especially Eastern European countries, which maybe used to use Soviet voltage levels to go through their warehouses and see whether they have any old equipment that they can dig out, even transformers that don't work anymore, that could be cannibalized for parts, anything that's sitting around. They say they should ship over and the Ukrainians will see if there's anything in there that they can use. Uh, they're also asking for more modern equipment, but 
DTEC, which is Ukraine's biggest private power supplier, says they need 40 new transformers to replace what's been damaged. And so far, they've only been able to scrounge up three. So what is the long-term outlook for Ukraine's grid? The Ukrainian government doesn't have the money to pay for all of the equipment that it needs to repair the damage that Russia has done. So they need a tremendous amount of financing from foreign donors. The European Bank for Reconstruction and Development just approved $3 billion in new financing, some of which will go to the grid. The West is planning in the long term to supply hundreds of billions of dollars in aid to rebuild Ukraine after the war. And it makes a lot more sense to donate money now to keep the electrical grid running so that extra infrastructure doesn't get damaged or so that have to be replaced later. On October 25th, there was a big conference in Berlin where international donors like the World Bank, the IMF, and Western countries gathered to talk about how to structure that sort of aid. And one of the people there from the Ukrainian side was the Minister of Communities and Development. He had a long laundry list of equipment that Ukraine desperately needs, including diesel generators. People in the West have been crowdfunding drones for Ukraine for months now. At this point, it might make a lot more sense for people to crowdfund an electrical generator. So Matt, there may be a large number of these Iranian drones in the skies over Ukraine, but their supply is not unlimited. How long can Russia keep up this assault on Ukraine's power grid? There's been a discussion going on between military experts about this question for weeks now. There was an optimistic take early on that Russia seemed to be getting close to exhausting its supply of cruise missiles. But the drones are quite cheap, and the Iranians are still turning them out. Russia is now acquiring ballistic missiles from Iran, according to reports. So it would be unwise for the Ukrainians to hope that there's any end date on this assault. What they need to do is get the supplies that they need to fix the grid, get better air defenses, and keep fighting the fight. All right, Matt, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, John. Can supply chains be more sustainable without losing performance, efficiency, and resilience? It's possible with GEP. With strategy-managed services and AI-powered software, GEP helps hundreds of market-leading companies build sustainable supply chains that are cleaner, greener, and highly effective. Supply chains that are good for the planet and good for your business. GEP. Software. Strategy. Managed services. GEP.com. Climate change is causing the weather to shift. Rainfall, temperature, frosts, all are becoming increasingly erratic, making life difficult for farmers who rely on familiar weather patterns to grow crops. Nowhere is this impact being felt more acutely than in Africa, where increasing levels of food production are essential to feed a growing population. Yet the opposite is at risk of happening. But crop yields have been successfully raised before. The Economist science editor, Jeff Carr, has been speaking with one man who thinks it can happen again. Today, the number of people who don't have access to enough food has gone up quite dramatically. And we want to solve that acute situation with food aid. 
But the long-term solution is to have poor farmers be far more productive. Everybody knows Bill Gates. They know him for his philanthropic work on HIV and malaria, and also for his interest in global warming, and particularly in technological approaches to dealing with it. And some of us can even remember his days running Microsoft. And what about this internet thing? Do you, do you know anything about that? Sure. <laughs> what, what the hell is that exactly? Well, it's, it's become a place where people are publishing information. And it's wild what's going on. You can send electronic mail. But I wanted to talk to him about one of his lesser-known projects, which is improving food security in Africa. Now, we face the headwind of population growth, particularly in Africa, the headwinds of climate change. And so can we allow farmers to grow more? And the answer is that the greatest event in agricultural or philanthropic history is the Green Revolution in the 1960s and 70s. It was a revolution in crop breeding. And along with the spread of artificial fertilizers, it headed off Malthusian predictions that population growth would cause famines and that famine and war would kill people by the million in the second half of the 20th century. The world has now the technology to produce the food that will be needed for the year 2025. Norman Borlaug, with support from Rockefeller and Ford, created these new varieties, initially with wheat, but then later also with maize and rice, that were over twice as productive. And so during the 60s and 70s, when Ehrlich and other forecasters saw that India and Pakistan would have mass starvation, in fact, amazingly, the calories per person grew because the farm productivity increase got ahead of the population increase. So we beat the Malthusian problem there. But Africa missed out on the revolution, and for several reasons. For Africa, that productivity increase has never happened because their weather systems are quite different. They don't use those three big crops as much. They use a variety of crops that have not gotten enough attention. This lack of attention stems from differences between Africa's environment and that of other continents and the differences between the crops growing in Africa and on other continents. There are many crops which are unique to Africa or far more important in Africa than elsewhere, and vice versa. Africa's got a much greater variety of cereal crops, including sorghum, millet, cassava. Then they use the cassava, they do many things, a lot of things. Cassava, then they use and they do starch, and then they use and they do garlic. And there's diseases of cassava that are spreading across the continent. And so we need to deepen the breadth of seeds that we go after with these new techniques and actually encourage these African countries to accept and adopt these new seeds. Norman Borlaug, who was the crop breeder who sparked the improvements in yields that led to the Green Revolution, was an American. He worked originally in Mexico. So that explains why maize and wheat were the first crops to get his attention. And they'd also had a lot of research done in the past. Rice has also been well studied by other scientists. Rice and wheat aren't so easy to grow in Africa because of the climate. And although there's a fair amount of maize, 
A lot of people depend on crops for which there has never been any serious research. By focusing specifically on African crops, you could probably get huge improvements in farming productivity. Sorghum can withstand heat far, far better than maize, but it's a very underinvested crop. Likewise, cassava, which is actually a root crop from Brazil, which they call manioc, it's not even an African crop, but it's mostly grown in Africa because you can leave it in the ground and it doesn't spoil. And so it's kind of your backup crop to have enough to feed yourself. Unfortunately, neither the productivity nor the disease resistance of cassava has got much investment. But this is a pretty good news story because we have, within the next few years, versions of cassava that are resistant to the two diseases that are sweeping through most of Africa. Crops can be improved in several ways. There's a lot that can still be done with conventional plant breeding, especially if you soup it up with a bit of genetic spice. Today, it's much easier to link particular genes to particular traits. You can use gene sequencing to decide which plants to grow, but you also these days have the option of using gene editing, a technique called CRISPR, and you can make specific changes in the DNA. The aims are to increase yields and nutritional value, and also to bolt in disease resistance and resistance to drought and heat. And those two will become much more important as the climate gets hotter. There are also some more outlandish ideas out there. There are crops that fix nitrogen from the atmosphere to make protein. If you could get other plants to do that, you could cut down on fertilizer use. And there's also talk of boosting the efficiency of photosynthesis, which would be a very interesting and tricky thing to do, but would obviously increase yields. And the results of a small trial on soybeans, which were announced recently, showed that that might work. And that's all part of a broad thing we call raising photosynthesis efficiency that we started funding like seven years ago and is showing promise. Although, you know, it's fair to say that the soybean result was out of a fairly small number of plants. It's true that soybeans are a big commercial crop and have largely been studied by non-African scientists. But this work proves the principle. What you need to do next is to recruit African scientists who understand African crops to do similar work on those crops. In 2009, I, I discovered that cassava is a product that grows nearly everywhere. And I found out that most farmers do cassava not as a, a crop for, for, for the market. They try to do it for their homes. Well, you've always got to go out to the farmers to see which traits they want. Now, we definitely have a challenge that we need to build up the capacity of the African scientists so that they're making decisions for themselves about how to avoid malnutrition and starvation. They'll make sovereign decisions, but the capacity there's not adequate yet. Breeding or editing drought and heat resistance into crops will certainly help improve resistance to climate change. And the Gates Foundation has already backed one project which did it successfully with maize. Part of the reason for my optimism is that climate adaptation is incenting the rich countries to take some of the money to help the developing countries and do what's by far the most impactful thing, which is to fund the seed research system. 
and to get that up to $2 billion a year. And so because that fits literally at the top of climate adaptation, I'm hopeful that that will get funded. Look, if you care about climate adaptation at all, this is the top of the list. And if you don't fund this, it makes a mockery of any statement that you care about climate adaptation. The dream is to get a doubling of productivity. And that will take both work at the seed level and how we educate farmers in getting access to appropriate fertilizer. The question for us right now is, can we help those farmers with better seeds? And the answer is that with the right investments, absolutely we can. But in combination, the idea of doubling productivity per hectare in Africa is a very achievable goal. And it'd be tragic if we couldn't take the climate adaptation funding and accelerate this and make sure that it gets done. The BBC might be British, but it's everywhere and kind of every when. As a little kid, I watched episodes of Doctor Who. Don't you mean the infirmary? No, I do not mean the infirmary. I mean the sick bay. You're not fit yet. Not fit. I'm the doctor. When I got a shortwave radio, I tuned into the BBC World Service. And much later, it was a real thrill to actually work at the BBC. It's been a go-to news source for every major world event you can think of. From the liberation of Belson. I have just returned from the Belson concentration camp where for two hours I drove slowly about the place in a jeep with the chief doctor of Second Army. The Suez Crisis, the Falklands War. I'm not allowed to say how many planes joined the raid, but I counted them all out and I counted them all back. They even had plans for some pretty serious news that didn't happen. This country has been attacked with nuclear weapons. Communications have been severely disrupted and the number of casualties and the extent of the damage are not yet known. But as solid a history as it's had, its future isn't so clear. The BBC has been a key part of British culture for a hundred years. Catherine Nixie is a Britain correspondent for The Economist. But its second century is unlikely to be as successful as its first. Before we think about that next century, let's think about the first one. What's the origin story of the BBC? It was founded a hundred years ago with four employees, one of whom was the famous Lord Reith, from pragmatism rather than idealism. They gave me, us, a free hand as to staff. There was no attempt to interfere with salaries. We could pay any salaries we wanted. There was never any attempt to interfere. It was a kind of messy compromise between radio companies and the general post office. The radio companies wanted to make programmes and the general post office wanted to stop anyone getting a monopoly on the airways. And so the British Broadcasting Company, as it was then, was born. A sort of smaller, scrappier version of the British Broadcasting Corporation we know now. 
in the early days, it kind of wasn't what you'd expect if you knew it now. So now we know it as a news gathering organization, really. But in the early days, it had this huge focus on cultural betterment. And it had this idea that it could not only play you stuff, but it could make you better in the process. So William Haley, an early BBC chief, had this idea of radio as a kind of pyramid with popular music and popular programs at the bottom, and then high culture at its apex. And the idea was that the BBC would suck you in by tempting you with pop music, and then it would gradually kind of pure you and your tastes in this sort of audio purgatory until eventually all of Britain would reach this blessed state where they were voluntarily listening to and enjoying Bach's Goldberg sonatas. William Haley later admitted that that never actually really worked. But clearly, eventually, the purpose expanded beyond cultural assimilation and got into the news business, as you say. Today, the BBC is known as a kind of public service broadcaster, which means it does lots of good whole meal things, like not just the kind of culture, but also lots and lots of news. And it can afford to do the kind of news and send people to the kind of places that other people can't because it's funded by a license fee. So anyone who watches live TV in Britain or iPlayer On Demand, which is its online service, has to pay 159 quid a year. And television, which takes most of the money, gets 55% on that. And the BBC spends an awful lot of money on news, £314 million a year. I mean, it wasn't obvious in its early days that it would spend that much. Initially, the BBC had no journalists. It had agreed through a kind of gentleman's compact with the papers that it wouldn't broadcast any news before 7pm, so it wouldn't get in the way of their sales. And there's a wonderful early broadcast from 1930 where the presenter just simply says, there is no news. And then the programme went straight back to a broadcast of Wagner's possible. And I know that there has been a long back and forth about whether or not the license fee is the right way, the just way to fund the BBC. Yes, exactly. So there's kind of fallout from the license fee. It's a good idea in principle. You get a really well-funded news service for a country which brings up the standards of everyone else. But if you have something that is a fee, then people have to pay it. And if you don't pay it, then people get fined and they sometimes go to jail. The BBC runs these scary adverts about it and always has done. Yes, there's a TV set on number five and they're watching Columbo. If you don't have a TV license, it won't take us long to find you. Now there's just a feeling that this is a hugely outdated way to get money for TV. So what do you make of that assertion that it is not fit for purpose in the Netflix age? Well, the BBC kind of has a complicated purpose. It has to do two things. It has to both be popular and it has to be pious. And it, it is generally quite popular, not as popular as it used to be. <laughs> Merry Christmas, Eric. <laughs> If you go back to the 70s, Morecambe and Wise would get audiences of 20 million. Today, Strictly Come Dancing, its most popular show, gets around 7 million. And it does also definitely do the piety. I mean, radio offers some fantastic programs, the sort of stuff that you just don't really see elsewhere. Like it has programs on Monteverdi's madrigals. It has The Magnificent In Our Time, which is the kind of program that discusses cephalopods in great detail. Then you have the World Service, which broadcasts in 42 languages to 492 million people a week. But an organisation this big and with a remit that broad is always going to annoy people. It was called the Brexit bashing corporation by the Tories. People are always accusing it and always have been accusing it of lefty bias. In the 70s, it was called wet and pink by one politician. And it's got a lot more to compete with these days. Smartphones and streaming are leading people to switch off communal TVs and radios. With all of that in mind, what do you see for the BBC's next century? 
It's really unclear. I mean, look, you wouldn't have predicted the success that it had in its first century at the beginning of that century. So prediction is a kind of a mug's game. But it does seem likely that the license fee in its current form will struggle to survive. And it does seem likely that its hold on the British consciousness is likely to decline. Figures from among young people are brutal. In a typical week, a fifth of 16 to 34 year olds consume no BBC content at all. I mean, that would have been unthinkable 20 years ago. And there is a general sense among some people that it doesn't do enough to justify its license fee. I mean, it can cover a state funeral better than anyone else, but too few shows are strictly style hits or in our time style virtue, and too many are just tosh, the kind of thing that any commercial corporation could do. And at a time when it really needs to prove its worth, it's cut world service jobs. So it feels like catastrophe is unlikely in the next hundred years, but decline of some sort feels probable. Certainly, the end of its first century has a less than celebratory feel. Thanks for your time. And let's talk again in 100 years, shall we, Catherine? Thank you for having me and be delighted. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. Or leave us a rating wherever you listen. We'll see you back here tomorrow. supply chains be more sustainable without losing performance, efficiency, and resilience? It's possible with GEP. With strategy-managed services and AI-powered software, GEP helps hundreds of market-leading companies build sustainable supply chains that are cleaner, greener, and highly effective. Supply chains that are good for the planet and good for your business. GEP. Software. Strategy. Managed services. GEP.com.